Back in the day, there was this giant of a black marshal working out of Indian territory by the name of Bass Reeves. Chances are, if Bass was on your trail, he'd find you. And the smartest thing a man could do at that point was just surrender and hope for a good lawyer. Ah, but outlaws ain't the most intelligent of creatures, and they damn sure ain't invincible. Just ask noted killer and horse thief Tom Story. Bass tracked Story all the way down to the red and caught him trying to flee back into Texas with a pair of stolen mules. Marshal Reeves ordered Tom to throw his hands up, and, well, I guess Story was feeling lucky. He went for his pistol, and according to Bass, quote, Right then and there, Tom Story committed suicide, end quote. Make no mistake about it, the exploits of Bass Reeves are legendary. Described in the papers of his day as a holy terror and one of the greatest manhunters to ever grace the territory, Bass served as a deputy United States Marshal for over three decades, routinely traveling into no man's land and returning with wagon loads of prisoners. But not everyone came on their own accord. There was always a few like Tom Story, and Bass Reeves left many an unmarked grave in his wake. Said to have arrested over 3,000 criminals and killed over a dozen men in the line of duty, Reeves was not only one of the most effective lawmen of the Old West, but also one of the most deadly. To quote historian Art Burton, To me, Bass Reeves is the greatest frontier hero in American history, bar none. I don't know who you could compare him to. This guy walked into the valley of death every day for 32 years and came out alive. But who was Bass Reeves, really? What kind of a man was he? Where'd he come from? Did he really inspire the Lone Ranger? And how the hell does a mere mortal grow such an amazing mustache? My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Bass Reeves was born into slavery in Crawford County, Arkansas in the summer of 1838. He and his family were owned by farmer William S. Reeves, who in 1846 moved everyone down to Grayson County, Texas, just south of the Red River. It's there young Bass worked out in the fields alongside his parents as a water boy until he grew older and was given the additional duties of caring for horses and assisting the blacksmith. And somewhere in his teens, Bass was selected to be his quote-unquote master's companion, his master being George Reeves, the son of the aforementioned William. Now, this was a much more cushy job compared to that of your average slave laboring out in the fields, but make no mistake about it, Bass was still considered not much more than a piece of property. As a so-called companion, he would serve as a mixture of George's coachman, valet, butler, and even bodyguard. Worth pointing out that George Reeves, at this time, was both tax collector and sheriff for Grayson County. Slave status notwithstanding, one can only assume that this was quite the learning experience for young Bass. Speaking of learning, it was also around this period that Bass asked George for permission to learn how to read. This request was denied, and instead George allowed Bass to learn how to handle a firearm. And, well, the rest is history. It really goes to show the power of an education, though. They were more scared of a black man who could read than they were of one wielding a gun. And I think that's saying something. As it turns out, Bass got so damn good with them guns that George routinely entered the young man into shooting contest, profiting from the prize money while doing so. Legend has it that years later, Bass would be banned from participating in turkey shoots just as an attempt to let others have a fighting chance. Now, when the Civil War broke out, George Reeves was commissioned as a colonel in the 11th Texas Cavalry. And when the regiment rode off to fight the Yankees, Bass was right there with them in the capacity of a body servant. 
A body servant, by the way, is just a term used to describe the slaves who serve soldiers in the field, oftentimes taking care of their horses and gear and just handling camp chores. This is a long tradition, and even George Washington had a body servant during the American Revolution. I have not seen the movie Hell on the Border, based on the life of Bass Reeves, so I don't know how they portray this particular period. And as of this recording, the new miniseries Lawman, Bass Reeves, has not yet been released. That said, in the trailer for Lawman, there's a split second there where it looks like Bass is dressed in Confederate gray and riding into battle. So I'm not really sure how they're going to play it, but I will say, from a historical perspective, there is no indication that Bass ever fought on the side of the rebels, or even accompanied George into the thick of things. Matter of fact, there's not a whole hell of a lot known about this point in Bass's life, up to and including how long he rode with the 11th Texas. All we know for certain is that at some point Bass made a run for it, fleeing bondage and finding refuge over in Indian territory. There are different stories as to how this all went down, but one of the most prevalent is that Bass and George got into an altercation while playing cards and things turned physical. Years later, Bass's own daughter, Alice, would state that Bass, quote, laid him, George, out cold with his fist and then made a run for the Indian Territory with the hue and cry of runaway N-word hounding him up until emancipation, end quote. As for where and when this happened, nobody knows for sure. Bass himself claimed to have been with the Confederates at the battles of Pea Ridge, Chickamauga, and Missionary Ridge, and even said that he personally witnessed the death of General Ben McCulloch in March of 1862. This doesn't necessarily jive with the stories passed down through the family, though. Bass's great-nephew, the Honorable Judge Paul Brady, asserted that Bass defected and fought against the Confederacy, alongside the Creek and Seminole, in the Battle of Chustin Law, which occurred very early in the war in December of 1861. Still others think that Bass served as a sergeant in the Union Army, but that has not yet been verified. Like I said, man, this period of the future lawman's life is murky at best when it comes to particulars. For a fact, Bass departed Texas with the 11th Cav, and that regiment did engage abolitionist forces in present-day Oklahoma. And yeah, somewhere along the line, Bass made his big break for freedom. It's believed by most that he hid out in the territory for a spell, likely in very close proximity with the Creek and Seminole peoples, as he would learn to speak their language and pick up more than a few indigenous skills that would serve him well in the years to come. And somewhere along the way, Bass got hitched to a lady by the name of Jenny. By June of 1870, things clear up a bit and we find Bass, now using the surname of his former owner, Reeves, once more living in the place of his birth, Crawford County, Arkansas, with wife Jenny and their four children, Sarah, Robert, Harriet, and Georgia. So yeah, we may not know exactly what Bass was up to for a good chunk of the 1860s, other than learning the lay of the land and the way of the Seminole, but it does appear that a whole hell of a lot of baby making was involved. And I mean, come on, have you ever seen a photo of Bass Reeves? Guy had a mustache the most men can only dream of, the kind that'll put even Steve Harvey to shame. I'll tell you what, you take Steve Harvey, Tom Selleck, and Sam Elliott, combine all their mustaches together, sprinkle on a little testosterone, and you're still not quite at the Bass Reeves level of lip toupee. Of course Bass Reeves was making babies, you crazy? It is literally impossible to have a luscious taint tickler like that growing underneath your nose without occasionally impregnating someone. Hell, I wouldn't be surprised if a few women got baby bumps just by looking at his mustache. And those four children in 1870 were just the start, as seven more would follow in the years to come. Now, in 1870, Bass was working as a farmer, but soon began making money on the side as a scout and tracker for the U.S. Marshals out of Van Buren, Arkansas, putting all that Indian Territory know-how his to use. 
This wouldn't turn into a full-time gig until 1875 when Judge Isaac Parker, a.k.a. the Hanging Judge, took to the bench there in neighboring Fort Smith. Back in them days, all of Indian Territory was under Parker's federal jurisdiction, and the men he deputized, one of whom was our very own Bass Reeves, were tasked with heading into no man's land and chasing down some of the rankest outlaws who ever set a saddle. And just in case there are some new listeners, let me just take a moment to describe Indian Territory during this period. You've heard of the Trail of Tears, right? Long story short, 1830, the U.S. Congress passed something known as the Indian Removal Act. And starting the following year, several thousand members of the so-called five civilized tribes, the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw Creek, and Seminole, would be forcibly relocated to what we now call Oklahoma. But back then, it was simply known as the Indian Territory. As time went on, other tribes were sent there as well. The Pawnee, Kickapoo, Sauk and Fox, Shawnee, even faraway people like the Iroquois and Seneca. And that's just really a drop in the bucket. For the next few decades, the federal government would continue shoving natives down there in the territory. I think all total, it was something like 60 tribes. And I guess officials figured they was out of sight and out of mind. Now, these displaced tribes did have their own laws and courts and policemen, but their jurisdiction was limited to tribal members who committed crimes against their fellow tribesmen. In other words, if you were not a Native American, or if you were and just not robbing and killing your own, then you could pretty much do as you pleased without any fear of legal repercussions. Didn't take long for word to spread, and in the years following the Civil War, Indian Territory would become an absolute haven for outlaws, bandits, rustlers, whiskey peddlers, and ne'er-do-wells of all shapes, stripes, and ethnicities. The popular saying in them days was there was no Sunday west of St. Louis and no God west of Fort Smith. This area was so wild that even as late as 1888, it was estimated that only a quarter of the white people living in the territory were law-abiding. This is where that federal court of Judge Parker's came into play. His deputy marshals were tasked with the nearly impossible job of keeping the peace west of Fort Smith, Arkansas. If you've ever seen the movie True Grit, this is the job that Rooster Cogburn was doing. And if you've never seen True Grit, bro, go do yourself a damn favor, okay? Take your pick, either version. I think the original with John Wayne is a classic, and the Coen Brother remake with Jeff Bridges is, in my opinion, a masterpiece. Just like Rooster Cogburn, Bass Reeves, and the other real-life deputies would hang around Fort Smith until they got them a stack of warrants, and then head west out into the territory in search of bad guys. If successful, the deputies would haul their prisoners back, oftentimes testifying in Judge Parker's court while doing so, and then receive a reward for each criminal apprehended along with being compensated for money spent feeding prisoners and mileage traveled. Now, if this job sounds like something that a bounty hunter would do, you're kind of on the right track. Truth is, bounty hunters, as we like to think of them in regard to the Old West, did not really exist, at least not in the sense of a lone vigilante roaming from town to town and making a living taking outlaws dead or alive. Don't get me wrong, that did happen, but it was deputies like Bass Reeves doing the bulk of the work, not civilians. Hell, a lot of the time, sheriff's deputies or even town constables would moonlight as deputy marshals in order to go after wanted men outside their jurisdiction, as well as making a little extra income. And to give you an idea of how dangerous this was, in just the two decades that Isaac Parker was judge, somewhere between 75 to 100 deputy marshals were killed in the line of duty. Out of all the over 300 deputies killed since the inception of the marshals agency, a third of them perished there in the territory. I'll drop a link in this episode's description, but I actually checked out the official usmarshal.gov roll call of honor, where they list the name of each officer who's died in the line of duty, and it's surreal just scrolling and seeing how many were violently killed in Oklahoma in the 19th century. 
There was even something known as the Dead Line, marked by railroad tracks about 80 miles west of Fort Smith. Travel up to that point was relatively safe, but you go across that threshold and your life expectancy just shrank by quite a bit. Outlaws would often leave notes at the line, calling deputies like Bass Reeves out by name, and saying that they was dead men walking if they continued to advance. Suffice it to say, this was not the safest of workplace environments, particularly if you were wearing a badge. If a deputy wanted to make it home alive, he'd have to be able to outfight and outsmart his opponents, two areas in which Bass Reeves absolutely excelled. Not only did he learn how to ride in a way that made him look much smaller in the saddle than he actually was, but Bass also traveled undercover, oftentimes taking on the appearance of a simple farmhand, a cowboy, circuit preacher, or sometimes even an outlaw. There's a famous story of him showing up at a cabin one day, on foot, looking all raggedy in tattered clothing and asking for a place to rest. Now Bass knew the men he was looking for were nearby. It was their mama's cabin. And if anybody realized his true identity, there'd be hell to pay. As it turns out, they fell for the ruse and even asked him to join up with their little outlaw gang. Reeves accepted this invitation, and that very night, while the fugitives were fast asleep, he carefully handcuffed the both of them without so much as interrupting their slumber. Next morning, Bass kicked the astonished bandits awake and marched them all 28 miles back to his wagon. Word has it that their mother followed for the first few miles, cursing Reeves every step along the way. Worth pointing out, though, that these were not solo ventures. Even though Bass did make that arrest all alone, there was a posse waiting for him back at the wagon. And this was actually mandated by law. These deputy marshals, when venturing into the territory, per protocol, had to bring at least one man along with them. Sometimes these were trackers, Bass often utilized Native American scouts, and sometimes they were fellow deputies. Depending on the job, Bass would often take along several additional men, including guards, a cook, and a wagon or wagons to haul supplies and prisoners. Not only would these wagons serve as a headquarters while out in the field, but they also worked as a makeshift jail for whatever criminals he happened to catch. Now, if you're imagining a wagon with bars on it, sort of like a fortified jail cell on wheels, as is sometimes portrayed in the movies, this was not the case. These were normal supply wagons that had been fashioned with a long chain that the prisoners would be secured to. More often than not, these captured men would have to walk behind the wagons, unless, by a stroke of good luck, there was extra room inside. And it was in such a fashion that Deputy Reeves would routinely return to Fort Smith with a dozen or more prisoners. The most I was able to find of him arrested in one hall was 17 men, which netted around $900 or $30,000 in today's money. Definitely not a bad payday. Now, it's often said that Bass Reeves was the first black lawman west of the Mississippi, and as it turns out, this is not true. Records show that there was another black deputy by the name of Smith who led a posse out of Van Buren as early as 1867. Then there's Bynum Colbert, a Choctaw freedman who was sworn in at Fort Smith as a deputy marshal some three years before Bass was. Still though, Reeves was one of the first, and he most certainly became the most prolific. Although there would be even more black deputies in the years to come, the vast majority of them didn't get hired on until after 1890, and one can only assume that Bass played a very large part in paving the way. Interestingly enough, about the same time that Bass got the job as a deputy, he was also arrested and brought up on charges of assault with intent to kill. I have no idea what the details of the case were, these appeared to be completely lost to history, but whatever Bass did or did not do, the jury would find him not guilty in September of 1875. As you'll soon hear, this would not be the last time Reeves found himself running afoul of the law. 
Now, Bass was not a small man. He stood around six foot two inches tall, and his most striking feature, other than that mustache, something I found numerous references to, were his hands. Per author D.C. Gideon, who interviewed Reeves in person around the turn of the century, quote, His long muscular arms have attached to them a pair of hands that would do credit to a giant, and they handle a revolver with the ease and grace acquired only after years of practice, end quote. Another Oklahoma old-timer also described Bass as being a very big man who told jokes, was full of life, and wore a large black hat. Even Reeves himself admitted to needing a certain type of horse to accommodate his large frame, saying, When you get as big as me, a small horse is as worthless as a preacher in a whiskey joint fight. Now, like I said, Bass would first pin on a badge in 1875, and he would work in law enforcement in some capacity for over the next three decades, damn near up to the time of his death. And believe me when I say Bass Reeves was an extremely active deputy U.S. marshal. One source I leaned on heavily while doing research was the book Black Gun, Silver Star by Art T. Burton. And if you're interested in learning more about the real Bass Reeves, I strongly suggest picking up a copy. Link in this episode's description. In Black Gun, Mr. Burton meticulously lays out numerous arrests and gunfights that Bass was involved in, oftentimes using court documents and even Reeves' own correspondence with the Marshal Service as evidence. And holy shit. I don't know how many men Bass Reeves arrested over the course of his career, but it had to have been in the thousands. At least one newspaper article published while Bass was still alive listed the number at over 3,000. And from what I read in Black Gun, I do not doubt it. Furthermore, there are numerous sources claiming that Reeves killed somewhere between 14 to 20 men in the line of duty. If those numbers are true, and we will take a closer look here in a bit, but that would mean that Bass was not only one of the most effective lawmen of the 19th century, but also one of the deadliest, if not the deadliest. With that in mind, there's just no way we could possibly go over each and every one of Bass Reeves' exploits here today. Once again, check out Mr. Burton's book for all the gritty details. Black Gun, Silver Star. And it really is mind-boggling how Reeves was just nonstop, month after month, year after year, making all these trips into the territory and constantly returning with wagon loads of prisoners. That said, we will discuss a few of the more exciting stories, like when Reeves faced down the murderous Brunter brothers and came out on top even after they got the drop on him. At the time, Bass wasn't even after them. He was chasing someone else entirely, but before he knew it, here comes all three of them Brunters, pistols drawn and pointed straight at him. Old Bass didn't so much as blink an eye. Cool as a damn cucumber, he fishes out the warrant he held on him and asked what day it was. Said he needed to jot down the date of arrest for the court records. This momentarily took the bandits by surprise and they began laughing at Reeves' boldness, which, as it turns out, was all the distraction the lawman needed. Quick as lightning, Bass whips out a pistol of his own and shot two of them deader in hell before taking the third brother into custody. For what it's worth, I did find another version that had Reeves killing all three men. There were a lot of newspapers back in those days, and you know how that goes. They don't always report things accurately. Also, more than a few of the stories we have about Bass were passed down through family members. As such, I did, at times, have a very hard time separating fact from fiction. It seems like most of these stories do originate in truth, but there's a few details that are questionable. A great example is the time the Bass went after a murderous cowboy by the name of Jim Webb. Originally from Texas, Webb was a ranch foreman and apparently one tough son of a bitch, in addition to being a little on the trigger-happy side. After Jim gunned down his neighbor, who just so happened to be a minister, a warrant was issued and it wasn't long before Bass came looking to collect. 
As tended to be his habit, Reeves was in disguise. He and his fellow posse man showed up at Webb's place, looking like they was down and out cowboys in search of a meal. Only thing was, despite inviting Bass and his deputy to light and set, Jim Webb wasn't letting his guard down none. In fact, he and his buddy, Frank Smith, both had their revolvers in their hands. Not aiming them or anything like that, like the Brunter brothers had been, but they was certainly at the ready. So Bass started talking, pretty much just flapping his gums nonstop about anything and everything with the hopes of distracting Webb long enough to take him down. This went on for the entire meal, and even afterwards, as the men retired to a bench outside of the kitchen. Finally, not sure what it was, but something did catch Webb's attention, causing him to turn just for a second, and that was when Bass pounced, knocking the gun away with one hand while wrapping the other around Webb's throat. Of course, Webb's buddy Smith still had his gun and was even able to get off a couple of shots before Reeves was able to shuck his own revolver and, while still clutching Jim Webb by the throat, spin around and put a bullet straight into Smith's belly. He died shortly thereafter and Webb, after spending nearly a year in jail, was released on bond and skipped straight back to the territory. So once more, Bass was on the hunt, found Webb in a general store over in the Chickasaw Nation and they began trading bullets damn near on sight. This is where things get a little sketchy. One of Webb's rounds cut through Bass's saddle horn, another shredded the reins in his hands, as well as his hat, and yet another tore a button off of Bass's shirt. Needless to say, Reeves didn't waste no time in spilling out the saddle and returning fire of his own, allegedly dropping Webb with two rifle rounds at a distance of 500 yards. Story goes that as Jim Webb lay dying, he shook Bass's hand. Now, while there doesn't seem to be any question that Bass did indeed kill Jim Webb, I gotta imagine there's a little poetic license involved here, especially with him making a kill shot at 500 yards. Look, I know it's not a scientific impossibility, but come on, man, that's a long-ass way to shoot with open sights. Especially freehand, and most especially when your target's shooting right back at you. And while I can't say for certain what type of rifle Bass was using on this occasion, he did seem partial to carrying a Winchester chambered in 4440. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not all that certain that a 4440 fired from a carbine is even effective out to 500 yards. Oftentimes these stories, not just with Bass, but most nearly everybody from the Old West, are blown out of proportion. We know Reeves shot and killed Webb's partner Smith. And we also know that a year later, Bass killed Webb. There were witnesses. This was reported on in the papers. It did happen. All I'm saying is maybe it was more like 200 yards as opposed to 500. Now, this gunfight went down in July of 1884, and then just a month later, Reeves had yet another close call. The August 28th edition of the Muskogee Indian Journal described the incident as follows. Bass Reeves' last trip had an experience that came near to cutting short his usefulness and did send one man where he won't fool with other people's horses. He, Bass, had warrants for two men. Frank Buck and John Bruner. While up the Canadian looking for prisoners, he came on these men but did not know them. He inquired for other parties whom he was after, and Buck and Bruner volunteered to guide him. At noon, all parties camped, and while they were getting dinner, he, Bass, noticed Bruner stealthily pulling his pistol. Suspecting something, Reeves stepped behind his horse and around to the front of Bruner and grabbed his pistol before he had time to use it, and at the same time pulled his own. Glancing over his shoulder, Buck was seen getting out his weapon, when quick as a flash, Reeves, still holding Bruner's pistol in one hand, threw over his other and shot Buck dead. Bruner was then secured and is now on his way to Fort Smith, where he will have to answer to a double charge. 
Once again, Bass is displaying an ability to take on multiple opponents at once, grabbing a hold to one while shooting the other. If these claims are true, not only did Reeves have two giant bowling ball-sized testicles, but he also must have been insanely fast, able to get up close and strike before anybody knew what hit him. And as we'll discuss toward the end of this episode, there's a possibility that that athleticism and the quick reflexes that come with being a pro athlete continue to run in the Reeves family even to this day. Now, Bass never did learn how to read or write, which is interesting considering that a good deal of his job entailed deciphering names on arrest warrants. This was somewhat circumvented by Reeves studying each subpoena closely after having someone read it to him memorizing distinguishable marks or shapes, and connected them with whatever name they was for. For example, maybe the arrest warrant or subpoena for John Doe had a certain ink blot on the left corner of the page. Bass would commit that little detail to memory, and when he inevitably ran into John Doe out in the territory, he would know exactly which piece of paper to pull out his saddlebags. And sometimes he had no choice but to make the prisoners read their own warrants out loud, just to make sure. If they also were illiterate, Bass would force them to travel along until they came upon somebody who could read. More than one angry criminal was dragged dozens upon dozens of miles while Bass Reeves searched for someone who knew the ABCs. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows and heroics, though. In 1884, Bass got a little too lax around camp and fatally shot one of his own men. They were out in the territory, per usual, with a wagon full of prisoners when Reeves' rifle accidentally discharged and sent around through the neck of camp cook, William Leach. At least that's what Bass claimed happened. A doctor was sent for, but by the time Leach got access to proper care, it was too late, and he passed on to the other side. Initially, there was no blowback, and Bass just went on doing his thing, but soon enough, the marshal overseeing his district was replaced with a former Confederate officer who wasn't quite so understanding. So it were that nearly two years later, in January of 1886, Bass Reeves was indicted for first-degree murder and locked up in Fort Smith the same damn jail that he himself had placed many an outlaw in. By the way, this jail, by all accounts, was just a pure hell on earth. It was in the basement of the federal courthouse, just one large room with everyone stuck together, extremely overcrowded, no individual cells, no ventilation, and the only light was what filtered through the underground windows. In an attempt to make the stale air more breathable, guards would regularly wet down the stone floor, but this just caused everything to mold over, including the scant bedding afforded to prisoners. They were rarely allowed to bathe and never received any clothing other than what they had on them when they got locked up. The stench was so bad that it even stuck up George Parker's courtroom, which they tried to mitigate with fresh sawdust. I was not able to ascertain whether or not Bass was stuck in there with the other prisoners or if him being a deputy meant that he had better accommodations. But if he was in gin pop, damn, that just makes this man all the more impressive. There's no way in hell he could have been locked up with dozens of the territory's worst offenders without at least a few of them making a move. And well, let's just say that Bass Reeves walked out of that jail on his own damn two feet. But the question still remains, why charge a respected lawman with murder for what was clearly an accident? I could see maybe second-degree manslaughter or something like that, but murder for an accidental discharge? It just doesn't add up, right? Well, as it turns out, the situation wasn't as cut and dry as it initially seemed. And not everybody was convinced that it was truly an accident. First of all, let's address the puppy dog story. You may have already heard this, and I myself have repeated it in the past. Rumor has it that Bass shot the cook, William Leach, after Leach purposely killed an innocent little puppy that Reeves had taken a liking to. And the way Leach killed the dog was beyond barbaric. He took a kettle with hot grease and poured it down the poor pup's throat. 
prompting an enraged bass to lift his rifle and blast the son of a bitch straight to hell. And if that really happened, then I gotta admit my first instinct is that the cook had it coming. I also think many of us would react in a similar fashion. But as it turns out, nothing of the sort occurred. And no, this was not just another one of my stories in an attempt to get your blood pressure up. Apparently, this rumor was being passed about when Bass was arrested. And you can even find news articles repeating it for years to come, even after his death. I do not know where it originated, but the truth is, it was almost the exact opposite, with Bass being the one advocating for the puppy to be put down. And we know this thanks to the great Art T. Burton and his book, which I will keep mentioning, Black Gun, Silver Star. Mr. Burton shares the court transcripts, including the testimony of Bass Reeves, his nephew, who was a member of the posse, one of the prisoners, and even the prisoner's wife. They all took the stand, and although they don't agree on everything, it is very obvious that Bass and Leach were quarreling about that damn dog. Reeves said he didn't want it in camp. I guess Leach was letting the puppy lick one of the skillets they used for cooking dinner, and when Bass threatened to kill the dog, Leach said that he was going to kill Bass's horse, at which point the rifle that Reeves was holding air quotes, accidentally, went off. As damning as that sounds, there is more involved. First of all, depending on whose testimony you believe, it's very hard to tell if Bass and Leach were just joking, you know, talking shit like guys tend to do, or if they were really about to go at it. Also, they may or may not have been previously arguing as to the quality of Leach's cooking. That said, all of the witnesses were in agreement that Bass had been sitting down, working on his rifle, right up to the point of it being discharged. He had gotten a 45 caliber round stuck in the chamber of a rifle that did not shoot 45 caliber bullets and was trying to dislodge it with his pocket knife. This was backed up by Reeves' own testimony during which he said the killing was not intentional. And in the end, I guess the jury believed him. Most of the prosecutor's witnesses had been arrested by Reeves in the past, bringing their impartiality into question, and according to everyone present, Bass did immediately attempt to render aid to Leach, even tried to fetch a doctor. What's more, everybody there at Fort Smith knew just how deadly Reeves was with both pistol and rifle. If he had wanted to kill Leach, he could have shot him dead instantly, instead of a neck wound, which might not have proved fatal. And finally, there's the fact that Bass made no attempt to flee in the years leading up to his arrest, and instead continued to faithfully fulfill his duties as a deputy marshal. I don't know if any of them jurors were on the fence, but at the very least, they did not seem to think that Bass was guilty beyond all reasonable doubt. And as such, he was acquitted. Also, there's no evidence proving this, but I wouldn't be surprised if Judge Parker may have even had a little sway on that jury's decision. He and Bass were said to have been close, or at very least had a very close working relationship. Now real quick about that jammed up rifle, I'm no expert when it comes to Old West firearms, but I did ask around and Snapper from YouTube's Snapper Antique Firearms Unlimited was kind enough to film a video recreating Bass's dilemma. Snapper has himself a genuine 1873 Winchester 4440, same type of rifle that Bass Reeves had, and he filmed himself shooting his cousin Cletus in the neck. Sure enough, it was not a fatal shot initially. They were able to slap some galls on the wound and call 911. But had they been out in the territory like Bass Reeves was, there was a very good chance old Cletus would have bled out. Uh, no, that's not true. Actually, Snapper did film a video, but he demonstrated how easy it would be to accidentally load a 45 round into a 4440 Winchester, if you're not paying attention. The problem is, once you go to lever the bullet into the chamber, it'll get stuck. And that's what Bass was dealing with when that rifle went off and shot Leech. It's a pretty cool video, not very long, I will link to it in the description. 
And if you're at all interested in Old West guns, please subscribe to Snapper's channel. Really good stuff. That's Snapper's Antique Firearms Unlimited on YouTube. Him, Duke Frazier, and the boys over at 11 Bang Bang are my go-to authorities when it comes to period firearms. Now, even though Reeves was found not guilty, this entire ordeal was a devastating blow to the man's finances. Bass would linger behind bars for six long months, waiting for the trial, unable to work, and ended up having to sell the family home in order to pay off his legal bills. And up to this point, Bass really did make decent money. In the year prior to shooting Leach, 1883, he earned $3,500, which adjusted for inflation is over 100000 nowadays. And that home he was forced to sell in Van Buren with eight rooms and a very nice-sized barn out back weren't nothing to sneeze at. But alas, it was gone. And after Reeves got out of jail, he moved the family to a more humble abode on the outskirts of Fort Smith. And he went right back to being a deputy U.S. Marshal, continuing his journeys into no man's land in search of desperados. And just like before, Bass continued bringing him in by the wagon load. Not Bell Star, though. Although Bass did receive a warrant for the famous Lady Bandit's arrest, she came in on her own volition. It's rumored that Bass and Bell did know each other, that they were friendly, and it's thought that Reeves gave her the courtesy of turning herself in. This would be the only time, by the way, that Bell Star willingly surrendered, leading credence to the story of outlaws after learning that the unstoppable Bass was on their trail, simply called it quits and turned themselves in. Other than Bell, it was the usual horse thieves and murderers, but by November of 1890, Bass, like so many others, was out searching for the notorious Cherokee Ned Christie. And to hear how that turned out, you'll have to tune in next week. I know, hate to cut it short like this, but Daddy has to go change the diaper. Not mine, my daughter's. She's two, and she's wonderful. Just can't wipe her own ass yet. Got a lot more coming on Bass Reeves, his arrest of Bob Dozier, and the notorious Greenleaf. We'll learn about the one and only time the Bass Reeves got shot. We'll take a look at his life after the territory became the state of Oklahoma. His very last gunfight, which took place when the man was damn near 70 years of age. And we will finally learn if it's true that Bass Reeves did indeed inspire the Lone Ranger. Till next time, adios. Tom Selleck, 